Listen to all of Wild Cornell Medicine's informative podcasts at wildcornell.org slash podcasts. Welcome to Wild Cornell Medicine CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm your host, Dr. John Leonard, and today our topic is radiation therapy. What's it all about? I'm very happy today to have uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Hamanshu Nagar, who's a board-certified radiation oncologist here at Wild Cornell and New York Presbyterian Hospital. He specializes in caring for patients with blood cancers and genitourinary malignancies, including prostate, kidney, and bladder cancers. Dr. Nagar is actively involved in developing clinical trials at Wild Cornell Medicine and at the national level as a member of the Alliance for Clinical Trials in Oncology Genitourinary Committee. That's a major national cooperative group of the National Cancer Institute. Dr. Nagar's research interests include the use of functional and molecular imaging, as well as tissue-based and blood-based biomarkers to personalize therapy and monitor treatment resistance. So it's really great to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for happening. This is an extreme pleasure. Radiation is part of day-to-day life at some level because it's in the atmosphere. We're exposed to it all the time. It has uh, good connotations, bad connotations, all, all over the place. So maybe if you can start by just giving us a sense at a high level of what, what is radiation in the context of cancer therapy. Right. Generally speaking, radiation is energy, like you mentioned. We're surrounded by it, whether we're on the beach or we're in a plane, we're exposed to radiation all the time. Uh, the way it's used in a medical context is that the energy behind the radiation is used to destroy cancer cells. So it's leveraging high energy sources to treat cancer versus the lower doses of energy of radiation that we're surrounded by all the time. So it's leveraging the physics of radiation therapy. Mm-hmm. So is it a matter of dose? Is it a matter of type of radiation? Is it a matter of where you're aiming it? Is it all of the above? It's all of the above. Uh, and we study uh dose effects, not just the total dose, but the dose per uh, sessions of radiation. Can you deliver the radiation all at once, or do you need to uh, space it out from day to day or week to week or month to month? Uh, So it really depends both on the cancer type and the way we're trying to uh, treat that cancer, and more importantly, what the eventual goals of that therapy are. So so when you talk about treating cancer, and obviously, as we've mentioned, radiation is used to treat many different types of cancer in different contexts, um, tell us a little bit about kind of the principles of how you use radiation to treat uh, cancer, but walk us through that a little bit. Sure. So like any type of medical care, the first question to answer is, what's the goal of this therapy? So are we doing it to cure the cancer? Are we doing it as an adjuvant or in addition to some other therapy, or is it in a palliative role to treat a symptom? Once we decide on the goal of that therapy, then we decide what's the tumor site, what's the surrounding area for that tumor site, and then appropriately so define what we're targeting and what we're trying to avoid. Uh, And from that, obviously the dose that's needed to do that but it's very patient-dependent and very tumor site-dependent. So what's the most common kind of type of treatment that a patient is going to get from the standpoint at a high level from from radiation treatment? I I would presume that uh, um, some of the more common types are breast radiation treatment, prostate radiation treatment. I'm sure there are others. What are, in the big picture, the kind of the main 
kind of types that a, a patient would be considered for in in most situations right. in a broad sense. So, right, in a broad sense, uh, it's external beam radiation. Mm-hmm. So uh, broadly speaking, uh, in this category, there's internal versus external radiation. Uh, large majority of patients would receive external beam radiation where we're not implanting anything into the body, but we're using a machine with an x-ray source to mm-hmm. treat uh, that cancer from outside the body. Okay. And so so how has that evolved over time? I would uh, assume that, uh, and just from my own reading of historical information, I mean, it's probably gone from a very imprecise to precise process. How has that gotten better? Is it just the machines are better? The physics of the understanding? Is it computerized and therefore all of that's uh, much more um, precisely done? How, how does that work? All of the above. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And, uh, so the machines have definitely become more advanced and more sophisticated. Our planning techniques, so in the past, uh, our imaging modalities and planning techniques would treat the tumor in quite a bit of surrounding uh, tissue. Now we're able to shape the beam in what's called beam modulations. So uh, as the radiation is being delivered, it's being delivered with a higher dose to the tumor uh, and lower dose to the other area. So it's uh, just the, the positioning that we have in the patients, the technology from the machine, and the algorithms that allow us to shape the beam better and deliver the radiation dose more effectively. So, so patients are very familiar with getting, and it's not therapeutic radiation, but diagnostic radiation. If they get a chest X-ray, if they get a uh, CAT scan or a uh, a PET scan, how is the radiation different in this particular situation? Exactly. So, uh, as we were speaking about before, we're surrounded by radiation. The radiation Mm -hmm. we're surrounded by is very low energy radiation. Uh, For diagnostic purpose, it's slightly higher radiation, but it's not looking to damage cancer cells. Mm -hmm. In radiation oncology, we're leveraging much more energy, much more powerful radiation, and therefore we have to be careful to treat only the tumor or the cancer and protect the normal tissue around it. So it's leveraging higher energy radiation for cell uh, damage versus uh, diagnostic radiation. What determines whether radiation is something that's appropriate to consider for a given cancer? And then within individual patients, how is that decision made within those cancers? So uh, radiation has a long history since its discovery in 1895. Mm -hmm. And the first therapy for cancer included surgery or radiation. And since then, as we've expanded the field to allow for systemic therapy and other ways to uh, treat cancer, radiation has been studied across disease types. What radiation oncologists do very well is study disease and decide whether or not radiation can be omitted in that case and then also decide on if the dose needs to be higher or lower so it's very individualized per patient and cancer type and studying patients thousands of patients in clinical trials to determine what the benefit is and how great that benefit is so uh, a patient with breast cancer uh, may elect for a mastectomy, uh, and that may or may not require radiation depending upon the tumor type, uh, the spread of the cancer regionally, or they might elect for a lumpectomy and a breast conserving therapy, and that generally requires uh, post-operative radiation to sterilize the tumor bed. Uh, in prostate cancer, patients for the definitive therapy could either elect for surgery or radiation uh, as the primary therapy, the curative therapy. Uh, even with patients that receive uh, prostate surgery and have the prostate removed, there's still a role for post-operative radiotherapy if there is a recurrence. So it's very dependent upon uh, the tumor type uh, and what the goal of that treatment is. 
uh, for a patient, uh, it also depends on what is the goal of that treatment. Uh, meaning, are we going for a cure? Or are we going for palliation? So it's important to have that patient discussion with your radiation oncologist. So in general, it seems like radiation is typically used in a setting where the disease is more localized, where you can aim it in a defined area, and that defined area is 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 reasonable, right. uh, so to speak. I mean, with stem cell transplants and things, people may get total body radiation, <laughs> but for the most part, um, we're talking about local local disease where one is choosing or there's a benefit to radiation delivered to that local area versus surgery in that local area right. uh, in many situations. Is that kind of a fair way to put it? Uh, exactly. And what I like to tell patients is that radiation is something in between surgery and medicine because radiation should be considered a medical drug because we're delivering a therapeutic agent to a specific area. Uh, but unlike surgery, uh, we're not removing it, but we're still focusing it as a, with surgical precision is the goal. So it's a combination and to understand that uh, it's a little bit of both surgery and medicine and to think of radiation as a drug that's being delivered to treat a cancer. So in most cases where a patient's in the situation of choosing between radiation and something else, and maybe this is hard to generalize, um, is it more that the radiation or the alternative is more effective or is it just the different side effect profile? Generally, it's the different side effect profile because mm -hmm. we've uh, labored as a cancer field to mm -hmm. study different modalities, one versus the other. If there was a more effective treatment regimen, there would be no way to recommend the other treatment regimen mm -hmm. in most cases. Mm -hmm. So when we balance the therapy of radiation versus another type of therapy, it's generally balancing the side effects and what that patient is willing to undergo. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the definition of the treatment that a patient is going to get depends on what sorts of factors and how do you define the exact uh, doses People have different size tumors, different types of tumors. What's kind of the way that that is uh, sorted through and prescribed, so to speak, to use your drug? It's not only a drug it's, analogy, it's obviously. A it's a radiation prescription. That's right. What we... right. So how, how does that all get set up and laid out? Right. So first, uh, a lot of it depends on the tumor type because we have tumors that are exquisitely what are considered radiosensitive versus radioresistant. And as your savvy listeners will know, a radioresistant tumor generally requires more radiation. So the tumor type really does matter. Then it's the setting uh, in which the radiation is delivered. Is it to treat the tumor itself, or has the tumor been removed and now radiation is looking to sterilize the tumor bed? Uh, and then the dose is very dependent upon that also, uh, having studied in clinical trials uh, which dose is appropriate and are we using it with an uh, adjunct therapy. So for example, uh, head and neck cancer that has uh, is also treated with a chemotherapy that sensitizes the tumor to radiation, so we do not have to deliver as much radiation for that cancer and is shown uh, to actually improve survival for that patient. So it's very uh, tumor dependent and in what setting you're delivering that radiation to determine what's being irradiated and what dose you need to irradiate with. So having passed through the radiation oncology department a few times myself, not to receive radiation, but to, to uh, see what's going on or to check on patients, um, it's clear to me that there's a lot of technology, there are a lot of machines, there's a very big process uh, and a lot happening. 
So what, how would you inform, say, a patient who's going for a consultation or who's getting ready to start treatment? And what's the process? How does all of that work? Uh, uh, I, you know, I, I'm, I presume it's not you and your laptop and a light bulb, obviously. It's much, much more complicated than that and very sophisticated. But um, so that could potentially be intimidating to people also. So kind of t- walk us through that process a little bit. All right. So the first step is the consultation where you right. meet with your radiation oncologist and understand why you've been referred to a radiation oncologist, what the goal of that therapy is, and how that therapy will uh, proceed. We discuss the role of radiation and the side effects that uh, may or may not happen. Uh, once the, your recommended radiation and the patient agrees to undergo treatment, we bring them back to the department for what's called a planning scan or a simulation scan. This can be performed with a CAT scan, a PET scan, an MRI scan. And at that point, that allows us to begin the radiation planning. Uh, this takes a large team. Uh, the patient sometimes just sees the MD, the physician at first, but it takes a group of dosimetrists. They, that's, what, that's what they do. They pay, uh, deliver the dose or plan the dose. Physicists to check the plans and they see nurses and then the actual therapist. So while the patient's not in the department uh, after that simulation, uh, that planning scan, a lot of work is being done in the background to plan the most effective radiation for that patient and their tumor. And then they'll come back and the treatment could be one day, five days, 20 days. It's very dependent upon that uh, patient and that patient's tumor type. Uh, But a lot of planning goes into the process itself and it's not just the physician that's doing the work. Mm -hmm. So so the... uh, the, the patient is going to, in the simulation, is that kind of like getting a, a CAT scan? Or things it's exactly that. that. It's, it's, right. uh, it's getting a CAT scan uh, during that simulation. We're positioning the patient so they're in the correct treatment p- position each day uh, because the one thing we want to ensure is that we have reproducibility for each treatment. Uh, we have different techniques to make sure that the patient's immobilized for the right cancer types. So uh, a patient with head and neck cancer might have a mask made for their head and neck in order to stabilize them. Uh, we have molds for the lower half of the body. Uh, we have other, uh, what I like to call cool tricks to uh, prevent the tumor from moving so the patient might hold their breath uh, mm-hmm. while the treatment's going on, which uh, leverages the physics of our body to deliver the radiation better and spare normal organs. Uh, so a lot of those uh, techniques are implemented during the simulation or planning scan. And we want that scan to be reflective of each of the treatments that we're going to receive. So so basically this is all engineered around aiming the beam at the tumor as well as possible without getting the neighborhood of the normal tissues in the body around the tumor. Exactly. We, mm-hmm. we are trying to aim the beam with millimeters of precision in order to treat the tumor adequately but spare the surrounding normal tissue. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, so when a patient's on treatment and they go through several days and I guess is it a fixed dose per day and therefore bigger dose more days and what's kind of the day-to-day sort of procedure how long is a patient there what do they just expect as they do that generally speaking it's the same dose per day Uh, I tell patients it's about two units of radiation per day and it's a cumulative dose depending upon the patient's tumor type as to what the total dose needs to be Mm -hmm. Uh, the patient experience itself is they are laying on a treatment table uh, and the machine uh, treats their tumor by encircling uh, their entire body from different radiation angles. Uh, Generally, patients don't feel anything. It's x-rays. You're you're not going to feel anything during 
the treatment itself. Uh, and then the patient uh, leaves the department soon after that. We tell patients in and out of the department about an hour. Uh, the treatment itself is as short as two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. So can people go to work before, go to work after, do do their normal activities, kind of stop off on their lunch hour, so to speak, or does it really put them out of commission during that time? Generally speaking, it's uh, completely outpatient therapy. Mm-hmm. Again, this will be dependent upon the tumor we're trying to treat, uh, but many uh, patients come in at 7.30 in the morning, and then they're at work by 8.30, or mm-hmm. they'll come in at the end of the day or take a lunch break and come in for their treatment, uh, which is why the dose is delivered over small courses over the entire time mm-hmm. versus one large dose at one time, which is done for other tumor types. Right. So we've talked mostly so far about external beam radiation where a beam is coming from a machine outside aimed toward the inside in a very precise way. The other major area um, that I've at least heard about and and have gotten a little familiar with is um, the concept of implanted radiation and also, I guess, termed seeds. Um, Tell us a little bit about how that differs, why that's better in some ways applied to some situations and kind of what that's all about. Right. So the seed or the internal radiation is leveraging the physics behind radiation therapy. So Mm -hmm. seed therapy, or what's called low-dose seed therapy or high-dose seed or catheter therapy uh, allows us to deliver a very, very high dose uh, to the uh, tumor itself by implanting the seed into the tumor or the cavity itself uh, and really sparing the normal tissue around it. A lot of uh, cancer subtypes are very uh, amenable to this type of treatment. Prostate cancer is one. Cervical cancer is another one uh, where it's been shown to be more effective in certain cases versus others. So the concept is that it's a higher dose and it's more precisely given? Right. It's, uh, I wouldn't say necessarily it's more precisely given, but it's a very high dose and the dose shaping can be, for certain tumors, can be uh, potentially more advantageous than the external beam form. So where, where are the seeds uh, implanted radiation most commonly used, recognizing that there's some overlap? Right. Prostate cancer is a uh, very common use where the seeds are actually placed into the prostate itself mm-hmm. uh, and remain there for the rest of that patient's life. Uh, but the radioactive activity uh, decreases over time, so the patient's not radioactive for the entire course of their life. So that's done in an operating room? Is a patient asleep, kind of yes. like a surgical procedure? Yes, uh, the patient mm-hmm. is sedated um, uh, during the procedure. Some can undergo the procedure with lighter sedation, mm-hmm. uh, just depending upon the complexity of the procedure and where we need to implant uh, the seeds. Mm-hmm. And so the, I guess the disadvantage is you have a surgical procedure like, but the advantage is it's one day and you're done, more or less, as opposed to coming back for several weeks or whatever the normal course is. Exactly. The course can be one day or a couple of days, depending right. upon the delivery versus, let's say, three or four weeks of daily treatment. Right. So one question people always ask, am I radioactive if I get radiation, right? So uh, the patient's question of, can I be around other people? I guess to the seeds, maybe a little bit, but but for regular external beam, not right. a concern. They, they are not radioactive at all. Once the machine's off, there's no radiation uh, in the area, so they're completely fine to be around uh, infants, normal local public around them. Right. Good. So, you know, one every cancer treatment that I've ever seen and heard of has some side effects, surgery, chemotherapy, other drugs. Radiation clearly has some side effects. It's hard to generalize, I'm sure, because of the place, but maybe you can give a couple examples of common 
places where radiation is used, what are the typical side effects that patients can expect? And then in a minute, we'll get to kind of the longer-term right. things that people need to at least be aware of. Right. So it's very, uh, as you alluded to, very cancer site-dependent because uh, as we've gone through this conversation, the radiation is very delivered to one particular area. So we don't expect large uh, full-body effects, of course, unless we're giving full-body radiation. And it's limited to the new... Uh, tumor site around that. So if we're radiating near the skin, there could be a skin reaction. Uh, if we're radiating near the bladder, there could be increased urinary frequency. Uh, if we're radiating somewhere near the abdomen, uh, there could be some nausea that develops. Uh, but it's very site dependent uh, in what part of the body we're radiating because it's the local organs that are being affected. So how are patients monitored for these sorts of side effects? Um, I, they're being seen regularly, obviously, and you have treatments to prevent those or to manage those sorts of things. Exactly. So certain patients we know uh, will come in with certain predisposing factors that's going to lead them to have more acute side effects. So we will prophylactically medicate them. So a patient uh, that naturally is nauseous all the time and they're coming in for a seminoma treatment where uh, part of the abdomen has to be irradiated, will prophylax anti-nausea medication. Uh, if a patient with urinary symptoms coming in for prostate radiation, will prophylactically start uh, urinary medications to help with their urine flow. Uh, we see them weekly during treatment and we're there every day uh, if they develop uh, a side effect and then manage that side effect as they're undergoing radiation treatment. So one of the other aspects of all, almost all cancer therapies to some degree or another is the longer-term side effects, and radiation is no exception. I know that that's changed a great deal, um, but what are the things that are at least low risk or some risk long-term for patients uh, who've had radiation that at least they and their doctors need to know about and keep an eye out for? Right. This is a, a very important question and a, a something a patient should always discuss with their radiation oncologist uh, because uh, while radiation uh, can be tolerated and have very few long-term complications, when they do develop, you want to be aware that they possibly can. And again, it depends on what site is being irradiated. So are there any groups of patients with certain medical issues where radiation is a big concern. So people, I had heard at some point, people with autoimmune diseases in certain scenarios, is it a problem with children? What sorts of people really have to have a very special conversation about radiation in a general sense? Obviously, some of this is site-specific. Right, exactly. Some are site-specific, but those that do have uh, certain autoimmune diseases, uh, it depends if they're on active therapy, if that autoimmune disease is in the past uh, history when they had it in their early teens or 20s and now is well controlled. Uh, so those are certain areas where you would, uh, radiation oncologists and the patient need to have that conversation as to what the potential risk is. Uh, like any therapy, surgery, uh, medicine, radiation, uh, it's balancing the risks and benefits of that therapy uh, versus the side effect profile that might come from it. So uh, autoimmune disease is an excellent example where we are try to speak to the patient as to what the potential risks are and then decide upon what the appropriate dose might be for that particular patient. So so from a patient's perspective, like most things in medicine, where you get your treatment may matter in some situations. And I presume there are patients that are being offered or considered for radiation that are deciding, do I go here or there? What are, what are some of the sorts of things that you would advise a patient as they're 
deciding where I should get my radiation treatment. What should they what should they think about or ask about or look into? And you know, I know there's been a tremendous investment. I mean, you've been recruited here among other colleagues. Um, we're really at Wow Cornell doing a lot to expand and grow uh, the capabilities of our uh, of our program here. What are some of the sorts of things that we have? So, what questions should patients ask? And then, what are some of the things that we in a center like us um, may offer that maybe isn't available elsewhere? Right. So, the one thing every patient should know is to have that patient-physician relationship and trusting that physician because that's the utmost importance to uh, any uh, any patient's care is when you're seeing that physician, do you trust what they're saying and are they providing levels of ed- evidence that uh, gives you confidence that uh, the physician is well aware of what they're doing. Uh, from a technology standpoint, uh, you want to understand what how long they've been doing this, what their expertise is in this in this particular area, treating this particular cancer. Uh, like we've alluded to multiple times, it's very site dependent. Uh, uh, it's very important that the physician has experience treating that particular cancer site uh, over the course of many years. Uh, and then of course the technology. So what type of machines do they have? What type of technology do they offer? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of uh, push into improving the technology. Uh, so certain things that we have available here are MRI guided imaging therapy, which allows us really to focus on the diagnostic quality of MRI to treat the tumor and avoid normal tissue to uh, treat the tumor in a very small target area as things move around. We're able to treat the tumor, stop the treatment if the tumor moves out of bounds, and then bring the tumor back into treatment and then treat again. So it's uh, very important for the patient to have confidence, uh, not only in that physician, but the technology and experience that that physician is offering. And it sounds like having a team, perhaps as much or more so than other specialties, where not only the physicists and the radiation oncologists, but also uh, others that might be weighing in on the patient's case, the imaging uh, staff, et cetera, is a very important thing given all the moving parts here and the and the technology involved. Exactly. So what we pride ourselves on is having a multidisciplinary team of surgical oncologists, hematologists, medical oncologists, and radiation oncologists deciding on the type of care for that patient. And then when the patient comes for radiation, it's a, a nursing team, a dissymmetrist team, a physicist team, uh, and then all the faculty in the room looking over that patient's treatment plan. And then prior to that, delivery approving the plan as a group faculty saying this is the right plan for this patient at this dose and this treatment plan. So you alluded uh, earlier to I think primarily or one of the areas has had neck cancer I know there are others where radiation interacts with in a favorable way um, or synergizes with whether it's chemotherapy there's also interest in immunotherapy. Um, what are some of the areas that, that radiation kind of connects to other cancer treatments in a potentially positive way? And what are you most excited about as far as exploiting this in the future, whether it's through studies or emerging treatments? Right. So radiation has a long history of working by itself, but we know we can do better uh, if we combine it with other modalities of treatment, particularly chemotherapy and now the emerging, rapidly emerging field of immunotherapy, uh, which is quite exciting in our time. Uh, Immunotherapy has shown to be beneficial for a certain select subpopulation of patients. Uh, The question that's being investigated at this institution particularly is can we leverage uh, the harmony between radiation and immunotherapy to improve the outcome of patients receiving immunotherapy and making that effect stronger and longer for those patients for that 
for that drug delivery. So what do you think radiation therapy is going to look like 5, 10, 15 years down the line? Where do you see the field moving? Uh, I think uh, we're going to see even more precise delivery. Uh, we're very interested in functional imaging in terms of we know, uh, for example, in lymphoma, we uh, uh, patients undergo PET scans that shows uh, uptake in certain areas or where the tumor might be active. Uh, more and more uh, chemicals like that are being discovered at this point uh, where we can actually understand the function of that tumor and actually just treat what's active and leave everything that's inactive or has already died, uh, leave that tissue uh, away from the radiation. Uh, also diagnostic imaging is becoming uh, much more sophisticated in that sense. So uh, we can see definitely what could probably avoid radiation treatment and what really needs it so we can treat a particular area and literally spare everything else. Great. Well, it sounds like a lot happening, and uh, I know that there are many patients, some in my family uh, uh, th themselves, who have uh, benefited from radiation treatment. And so uh, it's been a great discussion, I think, to give people an overview of where the field is, and we'll definitely have some more discussions in the future with uh, some of your colleagues as well about uh, kind of where radiation fits in more specific situations. But I think this has been a great overview. So thank you for taking the time. Of course. Thank you for having me. Great. So I want to encourage our audience to download, subscribe, rate, and review CancerCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, or online at wildcornell.org. We also encourage you to write to us at cancercast at med.cornell.edu with questions, comments, and topics you'd like to see us cover more in-depth in the future. That's it for CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm Dr. John Leonard. Thanks for tuning in. If you or a loved one is undergoing cancer treatment, rehabilitation medicine can help with recovery and ease painful side effects. Listen to Back to Health, while Cornell Medicine's podcast series dedicated to rehabilitative medicine to learn more about the ways psychiatrists can help. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Weill Cornell Medicine as an institution.